Jellyfish Lake is this lake in Palau, uh, where you have millions of these jellyfish, of the Mastichus Papua jellyfish. And this jellyfish, uh, it has interaction with a symbiotic algae. It has an intracellular algae that lives inside the tissue of the jellyfish. And the, the algae photosynthesizes and gives the product of photosynthesis to the jellyfish. So the jellyfish almost doesn't feed. It gets most of the energy from the algae. Uh, and because they need each other, the jellyfish moves with the sun. So like it follows the pattern of the sun to maximize the, the photosynthesis of the algae. Hi there, you're listening to another episode of our podcast, What Are You Going To Do With That? by the Minerva Center for the Rule of Law Under Extreme Conditions at the University of Haifa. I am Dani, and I am a PhD candidate chatting with peers about their academic journey, including the ups and downs. Their tips and tricks help me to get through my own journey. And today, our guest is Dr. Mariana Rocha de Souza, and Mariana got her BSc in Sao Paulo, her MSc in Marseille, and her PhD in Hawaii. Her field is marine biology, and she has researched jellyfish and corals. She recently completed her PhD, so congratulations to her, and she was awarded the prestigious John A. Knaus Marine Policy Fellowship, which means that she is now on a one-year paid fellowship in Washington, D.C., focusing on critical marine policy issues. Before I continue... I want to invite you to check out our social media accounts with the handle at what to do with that, where the two is spelled like the number two. Connect with us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and rate us on your favorite podcast app. For more tips and tricks, have a look at our blog as well on our website and on the videos on our YouTube channel. And while you're at it, don't forget to subscribe. Now, back to Mariana Rocha de Souza. Mariana has, like I said, a BSc in Biological Sciences and Science Teacher License from the University of Sao Paulo. Then she went for an MSc in Oceanography at the Université A Marseille in France, and she continued with a PhD in Marine Biology at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Mariana already has quite a number of publications out there that focus on corals in future ocean conditions. She has continuously received grants, fellowships, and awards for her work. And in addition to her research, Mariana has teaching experience, had mentees and interns, and spent time on science education and communication. After successfully completing her PhD, Mariana was awarded the prestigious John A. Knaus Marine Policy Fellowship and is now in Washington, D.C., where she focuses on policy. And I am very curious to find out how she finds the executive instead of only the research side of things, and of course, what she envisions to be next. Welcome, Mariana, to our show. How are you doing? Thank you. Hi, I'm doing well. Great, great. Very happy to be here. Yeah, we didn't have a marine biologist yet or a marine scientist like you. Um, when Ido, our producer, told me uh, about you coming on the show, he said, oh, she studied jellyfish. <laughs> and just the day before that, I was speaking to my partner. Um, I think we were in a zoo or something, and we were talking about jellyfish and how they're maybe kind of a dinosaur. So it was funny that that all came together. Came together. Uh, so I'm curious what you will be telling me and teaching me today. But I also know it's a bit more now of a focus on corals and policy and not only jelly. Oh, happy to talk about both. So we'll get there. And we'll do that over a drink. I brought my amaretto with me, as usual. What are you having? Well, it's 9 a.m. here um, in D.C. Right. So <laughs> I thought about, like, should I bring wine? What should I bring? It's like, well, it's 9 a.m. So I'm bringing coffee. I'm Brazilian. Coffee is like most of the coffee worldwide is actually produced in Brazil. I don't know if you guys knew that okay. fact. Uh, so Brazilians, we consume a lot of coffee. Yeah. So I'm drinking my right. coffee. <laughs> Very nice. Cheers. Cheers. So are you actually drinking Brazilian coffee? No. <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm not. I'm drinking American coffee. But yeah, every time I go to Brazil or someone comes to visit, I ask them to bring Brazilian coffee. But I have not right now that's all right 
Okay, uh, let's get started with a few short questions. Um, and my first one, and I can already see what it is a little bit, obviously, with the coffee at nine in the morning. But what is your, does your morning routine look like? Oh, my morning routine. Um, so, well, recently we adopted a dog. We, we, yeah, we rescued a dog from the street, actually. This dog was almost okay. hit by a car. We ended up bringing it home. Um, so we adopted this dog. So our routine has for sure changed. So right now, every morning we wake up, take the dog on a walk. We have some nice uh, parks around the house. So we take the dog on a walk. After that, we come back. And then I have my coffee and granola. So that's my breakfast, usually granola um, and almond milk. And then start working. Open my computer. Um, so I'm still working from home. So usually just change. Not, I don't have to wear anything formal. But from the top up, I have to be at least presentable for meetings, for conferences. <laughs> um, and yeah, so usually working from home. Um, that's my morning routine. Yeah. I didn't hear the coffee in it. Oh, so coffee and granola. Yeah. Okay. So, yes. <laughs> that's a good combination. All right. I heard the story about the dog before. Somehow a few guests on the last few episodes have also mostly adopted, not oh. bought, right? Yes. Dog. yes. So that's, that's really nice. Maybe it's a hint. Not sure if I'm gonna follow up on it. <laughs> I think I'm not it's. A morning I think it's getting very popular. I think people are um, learning. I mean, you're doing something good for the dog, right? Like it's a, it's a beneficial for both. Like we we would like to have a dog, and the dog for sure needed a house. So why would we buy one? We can just adopt this dog that we we saw that was in need. So yeah, I think more and more people become more conscientious of that in adopting instead of buying. Yeah, that's a good thing. Yeah. I do like that. Yeah. And she's super sweet. <laughs> <laughs> so you're now in DC with the dog. Yes. <laughs> um, but what did you like most about back when you were living on Hawaii? Oh my God. Hawaii is amazing. Uh, so <laughs> Hawaii... It sounds like a dream. Yeah. Hawaii is a dream. We say it's paradise. Um, yeah. We say... So Hawaii is very expensive, right? Like it, living in Hawaii, it's, an ex, it's expensive. That's kind of a down thing about living there. So we say that's the price of living in Hawaii. Like it's worth it because the place is so beautiful. It's paradise. That's the price of living in paradise. But so Hawaii is um, like an island chain. Um, so it's, it's part of the U.S., but it's very far. It's actually almost the same distance like between... Um, U.S. and Japan, so we're really in the middle of nowhere. Uh, it's surrounded by water. It's yeah, the ocean is amazing. On the same day, you can dive, we can swim with dolphins and corals, and do a hike, uh, and and have amazing views in the forest on the hike. So what I like the most about Hawaii is the nature. Is the fact that like yes, it's expensive to live there, but like the most amazing things are free. Like nature is free so like i love living in hawaii uh i love it being in the water love it doing love it going on hikes so yeah hawaii so many so many things to do <laughs> sounds like you're not done with hawaii but we'll get i'm to that. not i really hope to come back but yeah we're gonna get to that <laughs> okay um, so maybe you've already given me an answer to this one but there's so many spots so i did want to ask what was the most beautiful place where you have dived at? Oh, so I love diving. Um, and that's, I think, if you ask marine biologists, people are usually very passionate about the ocean. Um, and so I have yeah, taken any opportunity I could to dive. Actually, like a fun fact. So when I was 18, I was living in Brazil with my family. And my, my dad, when I was 18, like he gave me the money to go get my driver license. That's the age that you can usually get your driver license mm -hmm. in Brazil. And I got the money and I used the money to go get my diving license oh, <laughs> instead. <okay>. <laughs> <laughs> because that's something that I always wanted to do. And until today, I can actually not, not drive in Brazil because I actually <laughs> never spend the time and the money to, to get my driver license in Brazil. But anyways, coming back to the question... Um, so since I got my diving certificate and then with the studies, like with the master program, like the, and the PhD, 
I got to go to some amazing places for diving. I've dove in Thailand, I've dove in the Great Barrier Reef in Australia, I've dove in Palau, um, where the water is extremely pristine, the corals are pristine, I've dove in Hawaii. So I've been like in a, in a few places diving. Um, mm-hmm. I think the most amazing places, Palau for sure. Um, Palau, like, you, we didn't have to go very far to just see so much. I remember one of the dives, I was there for two months doing research. And one of the dives, I was crying underwater. I was kind of emotional underwater because it was so beautiful. Like there were so many things happening. It just felt like a busy city, you know, like whenever I would look, there would be things going on, like fish, like different types of fish here, different types of fish there, like sharks. And like, it was just amazing. Yeah. I remember like being emotional, getting emotional underwater in Palau, wow. but also the Great Barrier Reef was amazing. I got to go um, in the north of the Great Barrier Reef and uh, where some corals are still hasn't bleached. So we're going to talk about bleaching. I'm also like jumping mm-hmm. like into some to- topics that I want to talk about. But um, so the Great Barrier Reef has been affected by bleaching. We're going to be talking about that. But there are some parts of the Great Barrier Reef that are still, um, that haven't been affected much. So those parts were just also beautiful but i felt we had to go farther in the great barrier reef to see almost like similar uh biodiversity that i was seeing in palau palau was like i could any any dive like just like it was just easier to see mm-hmm. yeah the same amount of biodiversity that we we're seeing um so yeah it was easier to see things in palau than in the great barrier reef when i had to go way farther because the corals are bleaching in the great barrier reef that's right. I yeah. have been to the Great Barrier Reef, but we were not able to go far out enough because we didn't have the time and the funds because it was mm-hmm. not yes. cheap to go far out on the boat and with all mm-hmm. the equipment, obviously. Were you uh, diving? So we've seen the great snorkeling. <laughs> it was snorkeling. Snorkeling. Yes. No, yes. I don't have a diving license. Not like you, unfortunately. Something I would still like to learn one day. Yeah. Um, so it was it was very basic, right? Because we're not experts and we didn't really know what we we're getting into. But we've only, unfortunately, seen the bleached uh, reefs. And now I also really understand what that is and what it looks like. And it's depressing. So I'm extremely interested in hearing about what you have to say about it and how it actually works and maybe how it can be changed in the future. Mm-hmm. So, yes. Yeah. So now that I know that you had this passion already from the start and you still can't drive, but you can dive for a really long time already, it's uh, not that strange to me that you've chosen to study uh, for your BSc uh, in biology back in Brazil and that you then went for an MSc in oceanography in France. Um, So how did you make this jump? Like... How did you finance that and how did you decide it was going to be France and was it difficult with administration? Like, yeah, how, how yeah. did that all go? Yeah, good questions. So just saying, I can't drive in US. I cannot drive in Brazil, but I, but I can drive okay. at least here. <laughs> but um, so yeah, I was born and raised in Brazil and around me, I didn't know any scientists particularly. I mean, my mom got a bachelor in biology, but she was a teacher uh, she never actually like worked in academia, uh, but I think she really inspired me. Like, would show me like different creatures at the beach, and I always had a felt a very strong connection with the ocean. I always loved the ocean. So yeah, when deciding where to go, what to study for my undergrad, I did consider some other professions. I think just because there is like a pressure, like to choose between if you decide to go for science. Like there's a pressure to go to med school, right? Like if decide, or mm-hmm. if you're not into that, if you're not into science, maybe you should become a lawyer. So like, I think in Brazil, there was really like <laughs> this pressure or a lawyer or med school. Uh, but as soon as I started doing like some research and talking to people, I said, no, 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 that's really like biology. I love, yeah, like nature. So did my undergrad in, in biology in Sao Paulo, um, at the University of Sao Paulo. And then after that, I wanted to continue studying. So for the master's, um, I always liked to travel. I always liked to go abroad. And I decided to apply for master's programs abroad. So I applied for a lot of master's mm-hmm. programs in Europe. Um, I was looking for scholarships because, yeah, my, my, we couldn't afford to just, oh, yes, <laughs> we couldn't afford to just leave the country and go do. study abroad. Yeah. 
Um, so I ended up getting like uh, being accepted in multiple masters uh, in, in Europe, but the money was a big issue, right? Like so, getting something that was affordable and with a with a with a scholarship. So I ended up going to the Université Aix in Marseille in the south of France. Uh, also, the weather was great. I also talked to a few oceanographers and that I didn't even know. I just found their contact uh, like online and then contacted them because I didn't know necessarily like, so I had been approved in Paris, in Netherlands, uh, in Marseille. So like a few universities in Europe, but like how to make this decision, how to decide which one to go. So I just contacted like some names that I found online, some uh, researchers and asking for opinion. And some people are very nice to respond and to give me like a very uh, honest response. And I remember one of them said, consider also the weather. You're from Brazil and I mean, you're already going to be living in a different country. You're going to live in a different culture. So maybe also considering the weather is something that you, right? Like something that might be important to you. And so yeah, Marseille that. is warmer <laughs> than, than uh, other parts of France. So that was also something that I took into consideration. So yeah, moved to France uh, to get my master's in oceanography. So a little bit more specialized. So my undergrad was general. So like just like general biology. I studied anything from plants to vertebrate biology to any kind of biology. Mm-hmm. Um, and then took some classes in marine biology whenever I could, some optional classes that were offered at the university. But then for the master's, uh, I applied abroad and then ended up going to University of Marseille in the south of France. Okay. And then the next question, obviously, is what did you like most about that studies? Um, so it was very hard in the beginning. Before getting to the what I like most, like, well, it was very hard in the beginning. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I was in a different country. I knew French, so to apply for the, for the master's, I had to know the language, like I had to pass the DELF is a certificate of proficiency in the language, similar to the TOEFL for English. Yeah. Right. So similar, similar to that. Yeah. I also had to do the TOEFL here to come to US. Mm-hmm. Um, so I already knew French, but it's very different from learning French in Brazil and then going to actually leave and taking classes in French, classes in oceanography in French. So like that was challenging for sure. And having to take notes very quickly. So like everything was challenging in the beginning. Uh, and there was a lot of math. My, <laughs> I think oceanography, there is like chemical oceanography, there's physical oceanography, there was modelization. So um, a lot of the classes were very, very challenging to me. So like, I think in the beginning, it was kind of a, a shock, like many things together. But with time, things kind of started to fall into place. Uh, so like the language started to become more natural. And the math that was so hard for me in the beginning, I even considered like, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I'll ever be able to actually, yeah, get a master's. I don't know if I can do this. But there was one professor uh, and he was so good in the class and he was teaching modalization. And in the end, I, I love his classes so much. And I took all the classes that were available for modalization. So like that's something com- okay. that's really like shifted. So I think that really says how important it is to have someone that's passionate about what they're doing, right? Like when you have a professor that is so passionate, it kind of passes that to you. And so I took the classes because of this professor. So I ended up taking all the classes in modalization and that was super interesting. Like, I don't know if I could ever do that again right now. I don't remember most of the things (laughs) that I did, but what I like it the most, I think like all these challenges and I can tell so many stories about, yeah, how how hard like culturally these things were but i i have so many good memories also and i think these things also help you grow right like i think i'm so proud uh, i feel so good and i feel so proud of myself that i was able to overcome all this uh i think like living in another country is 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 good and the, that is the good and that is also the bad like i mean not bad but mm-hmm. um it's always not as easy as people think. I think people have a dream of, I'm going to study abroad and it's just going to be like, I don't know, Rainbows roses and unicorns. And, unicorns. <laughs> and um, I mean, there is, there, it's amazing to live abroad. You learn more about different cultures, you experience different food. I mean, food and wine 
in France. <laughs> Amazing. <Right? laughs> uh, but it's, there is also the it other... It can also be a challenge. Exactly. There is also the other side that people usually don't talk about. That, yeah, you're in a different country culturally. Uh, it is different. Like, uh, But I think you also learn how to value the, cult the other culture, right? Like, can you... I think also learn a lot about yourself. So I think like all of this... Yeah, I... I remember those times, even though they were challenging. I have very good memories of, of those times. I made great friendships uh, that last until today. And just like traveling is also fun, for sure. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I will remember the cheese and the wine. Yes. Yeah, that's the reason for me to visit France again. <laughs> All right. Um, so you've done that once. You hopped from Brazil, uh, where you're from to France and you dealt with the challenges, but you look back on it really well. And you did manage to get through the mathematics and get your degree. Um, but then how did you end up in Hawaii? Because that is really far away from everything, as you said before. <laughs> yes, yes. So actually during the masters, uh, so the masters in Europe is about two years. So it's a, it's a fixed time. So it's different from the masters in US. Uh, so right now I am in US, so I can see the difference. So in Europe, uh, the master is a fixed time. So you have um, master one and master's two. So it's only two years. And during the second year, you have to do an internship. Um, so for the internship, okay. I contacted a few people that I knew in the field. So yeah, something that I didn't say during my undergrad, I was already doing some research. I joined a lab just as an intern. I was working on jellyfish. So jellyfish systematics. So identifying okay. <laughs> the jellyfish is like looking at the the feeding patterns of jellyfish and not just jellyfish, but also, um, I mean, sessile jellyfish is like, um, yeah, some polyps. So anyways, so during my undergrad, I was also working on jellyfish. And then during the master's, it was more like I was taking classes on math, like taking whatever I could, some biological mm -hmm. classes too. But then for the, for the internship that I had to do, I contacted some professors that I knew in the field There's like some people that I had met in a conference that was not particularly close, but I just kind of, yeah, shoot them an email. Networked. That worked yeah. and asked for contact information. Said, hey, I'm looking for an internship. Can you suggest me some names of people that I could contact? Um, so they suggested me some names. I went to the list, contacted a few people. And then a professor in California invited me to go work for him. So, hey, come here. Okay, I have, nice. yeah, um, I have this project I think could be done in the short term. And then I got like a small grant also the University of Marseille, where I was, to help uh, cover the costs of traveling. Mm -hmm. So then I went to California, the Univer University uh, of California, Merced. It was a, it's the newest campus of University of California. It is close to, close-ish to Yosemite for those that have been in California. So I moved there and was there for four months, like studying Mastigias papua. So studying Mastigias papua. Mastigias papua is a jellyfish. has a fascinating, like, fact. So if you have never seen photos, you should Google photos of the jellyfish lake. So jellyfish mm -hmm. lake is this lake in Palau, uh, where you have millions of this jellyfish, of the Mastigias papua jellyfish. And this jellyfish, uh, it has interaction with a symbiotic algae. It has an intracellular algae that lives inside the tissue of the jellyfish. Okay. And the, the algae photosynthesizes and gives the product of photosynthesis to the jellyfish. So the jellyfish almost doesn't feed. Okay. It gets most of the energy from the algae. Uh, and because they oh. need each other, the jellyfish moves with the sun. So, like, it follows the pattern of the sun to maximize the the photosynthesis of the algae. So that's what I was studying. I was studying this uh, this species in California, in the lab. We had some specimens um, there in the lab. So I was kind of like doing systematics, like so measuring the umbrella, measuring different parts of the body of the jellyfish to compare uh, the measurements with the other specimens that we have to see if they're actually the same species or not. So that's what I was working on. But I got very, very interested in this interaction of the jellyfish and the algae. I thought it was fascinating to imagine mm -hmm. like, these two animals, I mean, one animal and a plant like living together. So I was very, very interested in that. 
And that made me kind of change my direction of study. So, like, I decided to study corals okay. because corals also have the same interaction. Like, uh, corals mm -hmm. also have the symbiotic algae inside them, and they depend, like, 99%, 90% of the uh, energy of the coral comes from the photosynthesis of the algae. So, the corals, mm -hmm. they can feed, they can still feed, but they usually don't. They usually just depend, just rely on the algae. So I got very interested in this. It's a symbiotic interaction. It's a mutualistic interaction where like both organisms are benefiting from it. I got, I think it's fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, so I decided to change my field of study and actually study corals. Um, so after I finished my master's in California, came back to, yeah, after I finished my internship in California, went back to France, finished my master's. Uh, went back mm -hmm. to Brazil and then actually decided yeah, to study corals, contacted Ruth Gates. She was a very known coral researcher in Hawaii during pottery reef work. She was very, very known at the time. And I contacted her and decided to change my, to shift my career path to actually work on corals. So that's how I ended up oh, and she in Hawaii. Answered. And she answered. Yes, she answered. Yes. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Very lucky and very grateful that, that she answered, yes. And she invited me to, to move and work with her. So I would say, don't be afraid to contact people. I think, like, just, I never heard myself telling this story, but I think, like, don't be afraid to reach out to people. I think just by listening to myself, I have reached out to people that I didn't know necessarily, asking for advice or asking for, yeah, for positions. Don't be afraid to reach mm -hmm. out. And it wouldn't hurt, right? Because yeah. in the worst case, what could happen? They could just not answer you. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Right? And then you haven't lost anything yet. And maybe someone does answer and then it's very helpful. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. And that's what the networking that we speak about a lot um, when we go to conferences and different workshops, how important networking is and how difficult it is sometimes to connect and to find another topic to talk about while you're drinking your coffee in your 10-minute <laughs> break. <laughs> But this is what it's for, right? Get those contacts and those business cards. And then if you ever have a question or you're ever looking for a position or anything, just shoot an email. Exactly. Sounds very good. And people are usually yeah. very open. Um, those that are, those that respond, they're usually very, try to be very helpful. I think like, yeah, like, or suggesting other people that you can contact. So when I was contacting people for the PhD, I didn't contact only Ruth. I, I contacted a few other researchers um, in the field and I would say hey like I'm looking for a PhD I had funding so um, I had got a, um, a grant a scholarship from the Brazilian government that I was going to pay for my PhD okay. uh, because yeah everything that I did was through scholarships like I yeah uh, we couldn't afford mm -hmm. so like everything I did through scholarships which also says there are ways to go there are ways to study abroad if you want there are scholarships out there I can give my email People reach out if you want to know some scholarships in my field. That's what I, yeah, I know more related to, right. <laughs> to my field. So uh, before I asked you um, how you got to Hawaii and that the connection was what it did for you and that you went there on the scholarship that you got from Brazil. So tell me, uh, what was your research for the PhD all about? Nice. Yeah. Oh, I can talk for hours about my PhD work. <laughs> so as I said, yeah, so I moved to Hawaii um, to study coral reefs and I had experience with jellyfish before. So like everything related to corals was kind of new to me. Um, so it took me a little bit to like did some research, like went with, would try to get any experience, any opportunity to go to the field. Uh, so I did my work in the Hawaii Institute of Marine Biology. So that's an island that's we call also Coconut Island. So it's an island. So I had okay. to take the boat every single day to go to work. Not a bad commute at all, let's say. It's surrounded by the mountains, no <laughs> traffic. It's surrounded by mountains. Um, so it's a separate island. It's amazing place. And for my PhD, so I decided, as I said, I was very fascinated by the interaction of the animal and the algae, right? Like the fact that they depend so much on each other. Yeah, the symbiotic mm -hmm. interaction. Oh, they, uh, they depend on each yeah. other. So the coral provides protection to the algae and the algae photosynthesizes and shares 
the protocol photosynthesis with the coral, so the coral almost doesn't have to feed. So I was very, very interested in this interaction. And um, then I decided to test how, which algae are present in the coral. So there are multiple types of algae in the coral, and not all corals respond in the same way to the stressors. So I, I kind of mentioned bleaching. So okay. bleaching uh, is when this interaction becomes disrupted. So corals have this algae. When the temperature of the water increases, but also with other stressors, the, uh, the algae photosynthesizes too much and produces reactive oxygen. So this, re this reactive oxygen is toxic for the mm -hmm. coral. So the coral gets rid of the algae. So the coral um, loses the algae that was very important for the energy and becomes white. So the algae was providing color, but also was providing food. I mean, providing energy for the coral. And as the coral lost the algae, uh, the coral becomes white. That's what we see when there is a bleaching event. So it's starving. So this coral is not dead. So if the coral is completely white, it's not dead. Mm. It's still alive, okay. but it lost the main source of energy it had, right? Like, so it lost most of the, arch, most of the algae, it lost the main source of energy. So it's basically starving. So it's still alive, trying to survive. Um, and it, and it can survive. I mean, oh. um, for for a few for de depending on the location. Like if there is more nutrient in the water, it can maybe capture some um, zooplankton from the water because it can also feed from. It has the coral is kind of an anemone, right? Like it's they are from the same group. Like they have tentacles and they have like stinging cells, so they can also catch small things in the water um, and and feed. But they cannot move, right? Like corals. They are in a single place. So if there is a place, if they're in a place with like water movement, maybe they can catch some, some prey in the water, but otherwise they're gonna die over time, right? Like if they have, they lost the main source of energy, they're gonna die over time. So that's a bleaching event. And we're seeing this happen more and more with a higher frequency. Like it has just, the frequency has been uh, increasing uh, because of climate change. So climate change is the main, um, reason why corals are dying right now. It's the main cause of the bleaching event. So looking at all that, like, and this interact, the importance of this interaction of the algae, uh, I decided to study what are the algae that are present in corals because there are different types of algae and some species of algae can be, can, they are already more resilient to heat stress. So some species, for example, it's a complicated name, Durusdinian, like the clade D, uh, this... <laughs> This this algae okay. um, it usually <laughs> resists. Uh, it's more resilient to higher temperatures. So if corals have that algae, they become more resilient to high, higher higher stress. There are some other algae that are considered parasitic. Um, they're considered opportunistic. So like they infect the coral whenever the the immune system is compromised. So like it, they're actually not good. They're not beneficial to the coral. So it, I decided to study the interaction of the coral and the algae, and like, so trying to understand which algae are present in the different species of corals, because different corals have different species inside them. It's not like everything is everywhere. So it's very specific because that can really uh, tell us about how much that coral is gonna be influenced by bleaching, right? Like if we know that some algae can provide resilience to the coral, so trying to understand what's the community of algae that we have in the different corals and how are they going to respond to the future conditions we expect uh, with climate change that can really help us understand, yeah, what's going to happen, like which corals are going to survive, which corals are not going to survive. Uh, or maybe that depends by location, right? Mm -hmm. Like how, how much corals from different locations change in their resilience. So that's kind of what I studied. And for that, um, I had one big experiment, not... Just me, multiple people in the department were also part of this. Chris Jury from the Tobo Lab led the experiment, uh, but I was working on the symbiont community of the corals. So we had eight species of corals from six different locations okay. in Hawaii. It was a very big experiment, like 40 tanks. And for two years and a half, we kept mm -hmm. these corals in the tanks uh, and we looked at how these corals were responding over time. So we had four treatments of um, temperature, high temperature. So double stressors, high temperature, and 
acidification because we know also that acidification is a main factor, uh, a main thing that can affect corals because corals have a, a skeleton of calcium carbonate. So with the increase in the, uh, in the CO2 in the atmosphere, the pH of the ocean can decrease, so create an acidified condition, and it can degrade the skeleton of the corals. So um, we had these corals in the acidified condition and temperature, in combination, in separate, and we also had control, where um, just like they were not stressed at all. Right. So I was looking at the Simon community before any exposure and then after, so like two years and a half experiment. And I also had some experiments for another chapter, um, just corals in the field, right? Like, so we had 600 corals we tagged. So we used like cattle tag, like the same uh, tag we use for, for cows. We use them to mark the corals. So we're able, we know which corals we are, which individual colonies we are working on. Uh, and we marked them uh, in 2017. And then again, in 2019. So we had a bleaching event in 2019, many corals bleached. So we're able to come back to the field and look which corals had bleached, which corals had not bleached, and compare the Sabian community, like this algae, before the bleaching and after the bleaching. Um, mm -hmm. And for this experiment, we had corals in different parts of Canyon Hebe. So we had corals um, that were more exposed to higher water circulation. We had corals that were exposed to uh, lower pH, just because different parts of the bay have different environmental conditions. So we're also able to compare how much okay. the, the location where the coral come from matters, right? Like how much the different environmental conditions where the coral is exposed to, how much that's going to affect um, the Samuel community in the corals. And I think like the results from both the tank experiment and the, the experiment in the field really shows that temperature is the main driver. So temperature is no, it's not surprising. Like we know temperature is what really is causing bleaching. Acidification was not a main uh, driver of the Simon community. It was mainly, it's good news. Yeah, it's good news. good news. Uh, but temperature is really a main driver. Mm -hmm. But also this, both my, my studies, like in the field and in the tank, uh, also show the importance of the environmental memory. So the location where the corals come from really matters. So in the tank, I had corals from six different locations around the island. So like they were very, very different locations. Like some mm -hmm. were like wavy beach or like uh, sandy bottom, like very different locations uh, around the island of Oahu, uh, urbanized area. And I had also this other experiment done in the same bay. So like more like fine scale uh, environmental differences because we're, they're all like in the same bay, but it, they still had differences uh, from each other, like different environmental conditions. So. And uh, for both experiments, really highlights the role of environmental memory. So like where the coral comes from, that imprints in the coral something about uh, what is considered stress. So uh, in my tank experiment, even though the corals were kept for two years and a half, like you would say, that's a very long time. They're going to respond the same way. They have been in the same condition for two years and a half. That's a long time. But no, you still see that corals from different locations they respond in a different way. So something is imprinted in the coral and that can be the genetic, that can be uh, epigenetics, that can be like, there are so many, like, we don't know exactly how that happens, but um, something about the, the long-term exposure to a stressor is imprinted in the coral that makes the coral respond in a different way. So that was seen in the Sibian community. I could see specific Sibian communities for each one of the locations, even though they were um, exposure to the same conditions for a very long time. So I thought it was very interesting. Yeah, I mean, I never knew anything about corals <laughs> until you started talking just now. And I feel like I understand and that you also did some really interesting findings, right? Something that, of course, there's more to research about. Uh, like you said, maybe the genetics or other causes that affects these differences where the corals came from. So that is very interesting. And and just to add, like, um, so I think like something that was interesting about this result is so that are, yeah, corals are bleaching and what can we do about it? Like each researcher is doing something different. There are so many different researchers like um, trying to find solutions for, for that. So there's like assisted evolution that are... Um, some 
so many ways we can try to maybe buy time as we cannot fix climate change uh, in the meantime where we cannot fix climate change. Maybe we can find ways to make corals more resilient to the heat stress. Um, so one of the things that some labs have been trying is to infect corals with different symbionts. So if we know that some symbionts are, provide resilience to the coral, if, you know that some, if corals have this type of symbiont, uh, they become more resilient. Maybe we can just infect the coral with that type of symbiont, that type of algae, and then the coral is going to become more resilient. Uh, could intervene. Yeah. But I think like with my results, they kind of suggest that it really depends on where the coral comes from. Right, like so, the environmental memory has has an important role in how which symbionts are going to be present. Um, so, not all corals, even though they're not all corals from the same species, are going to respond in the same way. And the symbiont community and the coral from different species, the different locations are different. So, maybe infecting the corals, um, I mean, with different symbionts, might not work, as we know that symbionts from different locations that are exposed to different conditions are going to have symbionts that are different from each other. So not a, it's not going to be a uniform response, not a, a uniform uh, symbiont community. Um, so maybe that might not be the answer. Uh, and actually, multiple labs have been trying, but usually corals, I mean, they uptake the symbiont, but they don't remain, they don't stay in the coral for a very long time. But anyways, just like saying the implication of my result, like, so that can, yeah, they can, more things should be tested for sure, uh, but I think that really maybe suggests that infecting corals with different symbionts might not um, might not work. Yeah. So that is the result. But I want to ask a short question about what actually led up to the research. And obviously, I've seen uh, a bleached reef in the Great Barrier Reef in Australia, like I told you mm-hmm. about. But what actually happens? when all corals in a reef are bleached? Like, why is it such an issue? Why is it something we should try to prevent? Yes, uh, good question. So yeah, so corals have interaction with the algae. The algae is extremely important for the coral. So like 90% of the energy of the coral comes from the algae. So uh, in a heat in a, a heat stress event, in a bleaching event, so the interaction of the coral and the algae becomes dysfunctional. As I said, like the algae produces reactive oxygen and reactive oxygen is bad. Even us, like we get antioxidant drinks, you know, like these green drinks that people, that taste awful. Mm-hmm. That, but like it's very popular, <laughs> at least here in the US, it's very popular. It says antioxidant, it has antioxidant uh, yeah, uh, properties because having a reactive oxygen in the body is bad and can lead to cell death. So um, the symbiont is producing these reactive oxygens. So the coral expel the algae. So the coral gets rid of the algae because it's damaging, right? Like the, the coral itself. So it's getting rid of it. And as it gets rid of it, it loses the main source of energy. And then the coral reef. So there I'm talking about interaction of one coral and multiple algae, right? Like, but imagine a coral reef and many corals on the reef dying. Like the coral provides protection for fishes, for a lot of tiny creatures. Corals have this 3D structure, like many corals look like fingers, like they have a lot of this 3D structure, Mm -hmm. where they provide a lot of habitat for multiple creatures. And most Mm -hmm. of the, actually, I think like two thirds of the fishes um, actually depend on the reef, at least one part of the life cycle. So maybe when they were juveniles or maybe they were older, uh, so like many fishes depend on the reef. Uh, there's also like this 3D structure where like many creatures can live on it. When the reef becomes bleached, so a lot of algae starts growing on it and then eventually the reef degrades. Um, so like, so fishes are losing this 3D structure. Uh, parrotfish, for example, like it's a fish that feeds on the reef. It's also losing um, its source of food there. So there's a lot of consequences beyond the reefs, like the, the individual coral dying, right? Like that's going to affect the whole food chain, even fisheries, right? Like, and the whole system, even fisheries, like if you like eating your sushi, if you like eating your fish, like we need to protect corals because like corals, as I said, like most of the fish depend on the corals, at least one, one part of the life cycle. And we can think beyond that. So corals protect the coast also. So 
Hawaii, for example, we have these corals around the island. In many island, um, island nations have corals around it, and corals protect the, the coast against the action of waves. So actually, without corals, um, the, the, the waves would be hitting um, the land. We also have sea level rise. So like many of the spaces would be gone in a few years. So that's also like national security. So corals are important, like not just for the biodiversity, but for economic reasons. Also, many people travel to places to dive, to snorkel. So it also has like yeah. a very um, economic impact. So like we say, billions of dollars are injected into the economy, like as source of tourism, as source of fisheries. It also has a cultural uh, value for many communities. So protecting the reef, it's very important, not just for the biodiversity component. And I think like being right now working on the policy side, like being in the sea, mm -hmm. that has been like a, something that's really um, I'm trying to do. Like when talking about something, like showing the different aspects of why it's important. Like, so the biodiversity matters to me. I'm a biologist. Uh, I yeah. love coral reef. So for me, the biodiversity aspect is one of the main aspects, but Maybe for people here in the sea, the national security aspect is the one, or the, the economic impact is the one that matters a lot of for a lot of people. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. So, um, so quotas are very important. I'm going to ask you more about your current job that is more connected to policy, mm -hmm. which I've just been saying. But I wanted to take one step back before we go there and actually talk about this long list of grants and fellowships and awards. And you also said, like, you've always worked with funding. Right? Yeah. I don't think a lot of people are able to fund their own research otherwise. Um, to, and that you've always been uh, working with that to get your research done. And you have successfully completed your BA, your MA, and your PhD in Hawaii, which you said was expensive to live in. So where do you find the calls for applications? How much time do you spend on applying for funding? Have you also gotten any rejections? Oh, and how so do you deal many. With that? Yeah. Tell me about the money. <laughs> yeah, so um, to be able to, to study abroad, like yeah, I always had to apply for grants. Um, and as an international, it's like once I came to US, like many grants or scholarships are restricted to US citizens. So it was also like, yeah, uh, harder to find something that could fund, um, yeah, could fund international students. But I think like talking to people and then people recommend a grant and applying, just applying. Like, and I think once you have some application ready, you can reuse a lot of the material you already have. Uh, and you just like recycle a lot of the things you already have and just tailor to the other scholarship. Um, so I got so many, oh my God, so many rejections. So like, but I think you, you, you apply, you keep applying, you keep applying, then eventually some things work. Um, But I think talking to people, I think like networking and talking to people and asking for scholarships that they, if they know about something, some scholarship that they could apply, but also reaching out and asking. So like recently I was able to attend a conference and the conference was extremely expensive. It was like $5,000. Um, wow. It was, yeah, it was a colloquium and this, there wasn't a scholarship, but the deadline was over. But I reached out to the... I reached out to the organizer, said, hey, like, I really want to go. So, like, make your point, be persuasive, uh, and, and yeah, so, like, networking, and don't be afraid to reach out to people. So, like, I insisted, like, I want to submit my application, let me submit my application, and then finally I submitted, and I got the, the scholarship that funded my attendance to this colloquium. So, I got so many rejections, yes, but don't stop applying, reuse whatever you have, And don't be afraid to reach out to people. Those would be my advices regarding. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. I think it's very important to, to talk about that, right? Like for every for every funding that you get, maybe you were rejected three times oh before that. Oh my God, that. yes. But that's often not what we talk about or what you see on someone's resume, right? Because you only write the successes <laughs> and not necessarily the rejections. Yeah, there would be a very long yeah. CV if I had to add all my rejections. <laughs> And it's very frustrating because it could be very time consuming too. Right? Yes. Like you want to work on your research and you want to do interesting things and then you're stuck writing. Yes. Yes, for sure. All of these things. And, and yeah. And, and trying to find other ways because yeah, at some point I would get grants. I mean, most for the PhD, a lot of the grants that I got after, I, I mean, I already had my funding from Brazil, 
but that's that didn't last all my years of my PhD. So after that finished, mm. I had to find other sources of funding. So yeah, I was teaching at the university uh, for a few years to be able to okay. to fund myself, and then I would apply for small grants for for research funds. Like not was not paying my stipend, it was paying like small grants. Um, but yeah, like having this conversation with with the advisor, like can he fund you? Can he find? Um, because some of the funding eventually also came from my advisor. So I needed to, okay. yeah. So I, I was not, I didn't self-fund my whole PhD. <laughs> I think that's very hard. And yeah, as I said, like we have to concentrate on the research. We have so many things already. Uh, we have so many things to do during the PhD. Uh, but I feel like keeping applying for fund, even in small grants, like that's experience. Uh, and you can always recycle what you have. But I think it's important to not um, depend on that the whole time. Like, I think it was, I'm so grateful that I was able to have, yeah, an advisor that supported me. I was, and I was able to teach, uh, for a few years, like, even though they stipend as a graduate student, a teacher assistant at the University of Hawaii was not, um, yeah, not, not the best. It's actually one of the lowest in the country, like uh, the statistic, uh, mm. came out. Yeah, so that's why the whole fact of Hawaii being expensive, like, yeah, that's where all this come from. But still, like, I'm grateful that I was able to, to live in this amazing place. I'm grateful that I was able to be there and do this research that I, I love it so much, even though uh, I was not making a lot of money for that. I was just able to, to kind right. of, yeah, to sustain myself. If you would have wanted to become a rich person, you wouldn't you would be doing this. Done no, this research no, no. and staying on Hawaii. And that's something that I talk to people. Many people contact me like, oh, I'm passionate about marine biology. Like, I think a lot of people dream about the career. Oh, I want to be a marine biologist. Like, I always loved uh, dolphins. Like, I want to be swimming with dolphins. And like, uh, should I drop my work? Uh, I have a family, but I'm passionate about this. And I just want to advise, should I, I, I quit my job and yeah, starting a, a master or a PhD. And I said, well, think, think about it. Like it's going to take a few years. Like you're not going to be making money. Like you can be passionate about dolphins. You're not going to be swimming with dolphins the whole time. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's kind of, that's a illusion. Uh, even corals, I wouldn't be swimming with corals the whole time. Sure. We have many, many days in the field, many uh, days in the water which are the best days, but you have a lot of time in the computer. You have a lot of time reading. You have a lot of time applying for grants. You have a lot of time coding because you need to look at your data. So it's not just fun and you're not going to be making money for many years. Like it's a competitive field. When you're a graduate student, you're just basically funding, like, uh, I mean, living. You're, you're just, you're just able to survive. You're not going to be, um, making a lot of money maybe to sustain a family or to like, so think about all these different things. I think there's a very illusional, like dreamy uh, thing about being a marine biologist, but people usually don't talk about these other things. It's still, I love my job. I love working with corals. I love all the years that I spent in Hawaii, but um, it's not just as living abroad as we talk, it's not just about uh, these moments, right? Like there's all these other things too, like as, you're in the computer right. for a long time. You're. It's also part of the job of a marine biologist. Like it's not just the, the the good things. Yeah. Yeah, and I think um, it's good to realize that it's also it's a choice you make, right? So like mm-hmm. I said, if you wanted to become rich, you would have done something else. But you, at this moment, are very passionate about what it is you're doing, and even though that comes with good things and with bad things, you're willing to push through that. So everyone has to make that decision for themselves, like how much they want to give up if they already had a job before and some more money before. For me personally, I always find it harder to go back. Luckily, I didn't have a job in industry yet, so I don't know what it's like to have (laughs) that kind of money. So maybe that makes it easier for me uh, in a way, right? Because I'm not going back in that sense. Um, but yeah, it's, it's up for everyone to decide also what their priorities are at this stage in my life. I'm able to make research my priority, but maybe in a future where I would have a family and be responsible for children, I wouldn't be able to make that my priority. Anymore. Yes. Yes. Right. So there's always that consideration that you, yeah, you have to think of. So 
the funding, luckily for you, did come through when you needed it. Because you were able to finish all of your degrees. You are now a doctor. Congratulations. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> Finally, right? It feels good, probably. It feels very good, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and you are now also on a prestigious grant, right? In DC, yes. to learn more about the policy side of things. So tell me a little bit more about what it is you're focusing on now. And is there anything in there that has to do with SciComm and science education, which is also something you've always focused on during your studies? Yes, yes. So I have always been very passionate about science education. Uh, I think like because of my history, right? Like I come from Brazil and as I said, I didn't know any scientists around me. Like I wanted to go to academia. I, I had this dream of become, becoming a marine biologist, but I didn't even know exactly what that meant, like what was the path. Mm -hmm. So I kind of want to be this person to the other people right now. I want to help people like understand there are paths to get there. If you want to follow this path, what's the path that you have to take? What are some options to get there? What are some scholarships? So like that's kind of my main reason for doing science communication is to kind of inspire people um, that like I would like to have that when I was a kid. Um, so I have been, I have done a lot of science communication, like talking to um Yeah, like newspaper or going to universities or going to schools. Uh, I did that a lot in Hawaii. I did that in Brazil. So I am right now in this uh, fellowship. It's called Canals Marine uh, Policy Fellowship. And I am in D.C. And the reason why I decided to apply for this is kind of um, aligned to the science communication. Like I wanted to try to understand how, how can we as scientists communicate our science better in this situation to policymakers, right? Like I think like I can talk a lot about corals, I can say how corals are dying, I can write papers, but usually only the scientists are going to be reading papers. How can I communicate my message to policymakers? How can how is science message even translated to into bills? How can our science message arri arrive into Congress? Like how can I communicate my message better so that it has a, an easier path to get into the people that are actually translating these things into into law, right? So that's kind. Of, that was kind of my reasoning to to apply for this fellowship. So this fellowship allows us to be in DC to have a one year experience in policy. So you could be placed in the executive side or in the legislative side, and I have chosen the executive side. So I am placed right now in NOAA, so the National Oceanic uh, Atmospheric Administration, and I am working at a Global Ocean Monitoring and Observing Program. It's one one of the offices, one of the programs in NOAA. And I'm not doing anything related to corals. So it's very different this year. It has, okay. been, <laughs> it has been a very different experience. Um, so I'm part of the Argo program and the Atlantis program. Those are programs uh, on ocean observation in different parts of the world. So I do a lot of like international uh, diplomacy, I feel like talking to different stakeholders in different countries about their ocean observation. But I think this experience also has given me the opportunity to learn a, a lot more about yeah, how the budget works, how, yeah, how the science is translated, like just understanding jobs that I didn't even know existed. Uh, I think mm -hmm. like in academia, I mean, when you think about, okay, I'm going to be, I'm going to study biology. Oh, as a biologist, you can work at the university, you can be a teacher, uh, you can be a professor. Or maybe you can work, I don't know, in an NGO. I think that those would be like most of the things that you would think straight. Okay, that's those are the paths. Those are the jobs opportunities for a biologist. That is so much more. Like I think like after being in this position, it's really opening my eyes. There are so many more positions that we don't even talk about. Like because policy, I mean, at least me, I didn't learn about that like no one ever told me these positions even existed uh so it has been kind of wide opening to learn yeah there are so many positions at federal organizations but also you can be counseling the president you can be there are positions like this that we don't even cross those are not positions that are talking about you can work in minorities like in the in the committees like uh committees that are discussing the bills that are going to be pass. So you can be working on comments that are discussing something specific to quarters, for example. So there are so many of these positions that are not even talking about that has been very interesting to learn uh, about. Still, having said all that, uh, I think I would like to come back to work on quarters. 
uh, after all this. Uh, it's really, I, I still love talk about corals. I still love my research. So after all this experience, um, I think I'd love to get a, a position on policy, but related to coral, to coral reefs. All right, well, that actually uh, took away from what I wanted to ask, <laughs> <laughs> because that is the most important question uh, of this podcast, right? That's why it's also called that way. It's what are you going to do with that? You are now in this program and it was for one year. Mm -hmm. It's one year. Right. Yes. So you have one year to think about what's next. Am I going to stay in academia? I mean, go back actually, because now you're in policy, right? Or go into industry or any other positions that you've now learned about so far. Um, yeah, you said yeah. academia. Yes. So <laughs> I consider academia or a policy position, uh, maybe a NOAA, uh, but working on mm -hmm. coral reefs. So I'd like, I for sure would like to come back and work with corals. Um, I took this year and I think that was my reasoning. I was like, I don't need to be working on corals necessarily this year. I kind of wanted to experience something very different, um, having the chance to kind of experience and just learn as much as I can. So that's what I'm kind of doing this year. Um, so yeah, this year I took the opportunity of doing a lot of different things, uh, not necessarily re related to coral reefs. Like I kind of wanted to be able to experience uh, and learn by doing different things. So like I'm working in the ocean observation uh, office, so I do I deal with stakeholders from different countries and to talk about their ocean observation. But also a lot of experience, like learning uh, with the different fellows and taking advantage of this fellowship. So tomorrow, for example, we're going to be shadowing Dr. Spearred. So I'm going to be following him the whole day and learning about his position, going into his meetings uh, and everything. Spearred is the chief scientist at NOAA. So uh, very high position. I'm also trying to attend like conferences related to policy to learn more about the different positions in policy. So I'm kind of like learning a lot during this year, but I still have this passion for coral reefs. So my goal after the fellowship uh, is to come back and to work on corals. It can be in academia. So I consider coming back and getting a postdoc. Okay. But I mean, ideally, um, staying in ANOA would be awesome, but more working on coral reefs. There are also researchers in NOAA that are also policy positions in NOAA, but all related to corals. So that would be ideal. That would be great. Uh, I'm still applying for jobs. So if you're listening to the podcast and you have a position for me, <laughs> contact me. Reach out. <laughs> Reach <Yeah>. out. <laughs> Very good. So back to the original passion. Yes. Corals. Yes. But I, I really Very encourage cool. anyone, like you have to be in, a, you, uh, in an American university to apply for this uh, fellowship. But it has been an amazing opportunity. Like it opens so many doors uh, and networking opportunities for sure. Uh, I feel like every, everywhere I go and every person I meet, even leadership positions, if I say that I am a fellow, uh, they really open up. Oh, that's awesome. Like I know someone who was a fellow or I had a fellow in my office before. So it has been opening so many opportunities for me. Right. And it can also, uh, you can get direct hire. So like with this fellowship, you can be hired directly to stay at NOAA. Interesting. Yes. So usually it's a way for people to get in. Um, so I really, really encourage anyone considering applying. Also reach out if you want to know about the fellowship. Um, happy to share my application and, and to help others if they would like to apply. Great. Thanks for that. I'm sure that someone will make <laughs> use of that. And we'll make sure that they know uh, how to find you with the, within the description of this episode. Thank you. All right, that has gotten us to really a last few very short questions right. for the time remaining. Right. Um, and the first one is, what do you consider to be your most important contribution to your field? I would love to say that it's my research, but I don't think that is. <laughs> I think my research, um, I mean, I hope it's contributing to the development of the field. But I think my most important contribution are the science communication aspects um, of things. Mm -hmm. like So like trying to yeah, reach out to uh, high school students or like I was part of the Skype, Skype a Scientist. Uh, Skype a Scientist was a program created by a graduate student here in the US, uh, Sarah. Uh, and she matches scientists with teachers. So high school students across the country, but not just US. I think she's out there is also um, schools from other countries that are participating. 
So it's a great way, like, I mean, it's virtual. It doesn't require a lot of work, but you're talking to, you're, you, you can be, uh, so the teachers are going to connect with you and kind of decide which topic you're going to be talking about. And imagine like you're inspiring all these students, like they have never seen a scientist. They can see someone, they can ask questions. Uh, so that's very fun for me, but also very rewarding. Um, sometimes to get emails back from students uh, saying that how they inspired them or they had questions. And so like all the science communication um, and being open, like I've been part of other podcasts before uh, or trying to go to universities and, and being open to responding, right? Like when pe people reach out, uh, I had some students that, that, that I recommended grants and then they eventually got the grant and got a fellowship to go study for their master's. So like I, I affected someone, I directly affected someone's life. This person can be a marine biologist that maybe can also have an impact uh, in the field. So I think my most important contribution to the field is actually the science communication. I hope my science is also right. contributing. I really hope my science is also contributing to, yeah. to saving the corals uh, a little bit. But I think my most important contribution is actually like the personal connections and the, the science communication aspect. So let me turn the tables around. Who has impressed you most with what they have accomplished? Who do you look up to? Uh, who have impressed me the most? Um, I think Ruth Gates was um, Ruth Gates was my advisor in Hawaii, and she was um, an amazing coral researcher. Uh, you can see her, for example, in Chasing Coral. Chasing Coral is a movie. It's on Netflix. Um, you can also find it on YouTube. So she was extremely, she was a great communicator. She was a great researcher, extremely known in the field uh, and very inspiring, like really advocated for women, like really advocated for um, like, yeah, us being more confident in our work, like how, uh, like we talked a lot about imposter syndrome when I had meetings with her, because okay. that's, that's a big thing for me. Uh, but I mean, she was always so inspiring and so encouraging. Um, so I think she is for sure a very, very big inspiration. I think not just to me, but like a lot of other color researchers. And she passed uh, in 2018. Oh, I'm very sorry to yeah. hear that. So she, she passed from cancer. But I think she was, uh, she was, and she still is like, a, yeah, a very big inspiration. Yeah, it sounds good. I'll ask you about imposter syndrome later. <laughs> <laughs> I know what that feels like. But my last question really is, how do you relax after a hard day of work? Well, when I was in Hawaii, I would go to the beach. I would go for a hike, like a short hike, because it's after work. Here in the sea, currently, I take the dog on a walk. <laughs> That's what I do. Okay. So we take the dog Gets on close. a walk. Yes. <laughs> you get to be outside. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I like to be outside. All right. Well, thank you, Mariana, for chatting and sharing your story with me today. I also want to thank the audience for listening yet again. Don't forget to connect with us with the handle at what to do with that on social media, YouTube and our website. And while you're at it, don't forget to subscribe. So what is that thing with imposter syndrome that you suffer from? Oh. That, has that gone away more or are you still trying to do it? I think that that's not, I think that's never going away. I think that's never going away. I think that's always there and it's something that you deal with that in waves, like, uh, or like daily, I think. Like, just, I think that never goes away. I think it's just, yeah, you fake it until you make it, right? Like you, <laughs> but um, you I mean, reminding, yeah, reminding yourself of like everything that you have accomplished, like, and that you're worth it. But I think that it's always like, some self-doubt so I think that's a that, that's something I don't, I don't think it goes away but I think you learn how to deal with it you learn how to be stronger than that right like you learn how to you learn how mm -hmm. to how to live with that not to have it uh, break you down yes right? yes and to be yes. able to continue doing the work that you set out to do 